Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, today we come before you and we recognize, Lord, that our faith is placed in Christ alone. Father, He alone is the hope that we have. And as that song recounted how our faith brings us into a relationship with You, it continues as we look to You in faith and grow in faith. And Father, as we walk through this life, we depend and walk by faith. And even, Lord, as we look to the end of this life, Father, it is faith that will bear us safely into Your presence. Father, all of this is dependent upon our faith in You. And Father, it is not our faith that saves us, but it is the object of that faith. It is Christ who has come and taken away our sin has justified us so that we stand before you just as righteous as he is. It is Christ who abides with us and strengthens us and guides us as we walk this life. And it is Christ, Father, into whose image we will one day be transformed. But Lord, we know that now we walk through this earth as as pilgrims, as strangers. And Lord, it can be difficult. There are temptations that we face. There is mocking and reviling that we face. There is hatred from the world. And Lord, help us to remember, as Peter is going to remind us today, that these are just reminders to us that we are not above the Master. And that as we suffer for His name's sake, Lord, it is a testimony to us that we are in Him. So, Lord, today I ask that You would work in our midst through Your Spirit. Father, may we find Christ to be sufficient as He always is. May we seek to be transformed into that image. Father, change us, mold us, shape us more into His image as we leave these doors here tonight. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19, and this morning we're mainly going to be considering verses 12 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 4. And what Peter is going to point us to is the very thing that David himself reminds us of in Psalm 34, 8. Peter's going to remind us and show us something that he's been talking about for the, for the entire book so far. And that is that as God's people, we suffer. Particularly, we suffer at the hands of others. We suffer unjustly. But our hope through this is the reality that God is good and that we can taste and see that goodness. And if we take refuge in Him, what does David tell us we are? We are blessed. Peter is going to focus on that blessing even in the midst of the difficulties that we face here on earth. Look with me. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, or loved ones, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. This morning, I'd like us to begin looking at the pilgrim's suffering. This week, next week, Bart is going to be bringing the Word for us, and then the week after that, we'll come back to look at what Peter tells us about the pilgrim's suffering. Now, none of us enjoy suffering. Suffering is unpleasant. It's painful. Nobody is looking forward to suffering as a part of the Christian life. And what we often find in our lives is when we encounter suffering, when we deal with being taunted or mocked for the name of Christ, we are at times puzzled at that. I mean, after all, we are following the Lord. We're following God. We're following the fountain of all blessings. The one who is at right hand, who's at his right hand, our pleasures forevermore. If that's true, then why do we suffer? And we have this tendency within us to pit these two realities together. And oftentimes what I think happens is we end up doubting the goodness or the blessing of God in the midst of our suffering. But what Peter is going to remind us of in these verses is that we must embrace the pilgrim's path of suffering as a means to joy and blessing in the glory of Christ. Embrace the pilgrim path of suffering as a means to joy and blessing in the glory of Christ. So we're going to look at several things this week and in a couple weeks at, at the pilgrim suffering. The first thing we're going to see is the nature of the pilgrim suffering. What is the suffering like? What do we as pilgrims face in our suffering. And this is a gracious thing that God does this. He doesn't just say that you're going to suffer and then sort of let us guess what that's going to be. He gives us some very clear, he gives us some very pointed points and descriptions of what we will face as suffering pilgrims. And the first thing that I think sometimes we rush over or we forget is that our suffering is what? Expected. We should expect to suffer for the name of Christ. Notice again what Peter says in verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial and don't think that something strange is happening to you. Now, it's interesting here that Peter brings this out here at this point in chapter 4. Peter's already dealt with suffering in every chapter of this passage, of this letter. I mean, if, if we... Look in chapter, let's just look up to verse 1 of chapter 4. Christ suffered in the flesh, so what do we need to do? Arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. If we were to go back to chapter 3 in verse 16, he talks about how that um, as we have a good conscience, so that when we are slandered, not if we are slandered, but when you're slandered, um, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, but good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In chapter 2, verse 21, he talks about how uh, Christ left us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. What is that example? An example of suffering. And even in chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about how we will necessarily be grieved by various trials. So, Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, twice in chapter 4 now. Do you think Peter is trying to tell us something? As Christians, what are we going to do? Suffer. So then why, when we get to the end of chapter 4, does he ask us and say, don't be surprised? And I think he's getting at a reality that is common to human suffering, that's common to the human, human existence. 
I mean, obviously, with so much being said about suffering, why should we be surprised? And yet, the reality is, in your own experience, when you suffer, guess how you react? I'm surprised. Well, wait a second. What's going on here? Because we have thick, stubborn skulls. You know, throughout the Scriptures... It is promised to God's people that we will suffer. And and the main reason for that is, look, we are not above the Master. Jesus says in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his Master. And so what's the application of that statement? A servant is not greater than his Master. If they persecuted Christ, what are they going to do to us? They'll persecute us. If they kept My word, they will also keep yours. See, Peter is driving at the reality that we feel entitled to to a pain-free life. We we live in America, and in comparison to most of the rest of the world, we are very accustomed to having a pleasurable, easygoing, convenient life. Right? Think, about, think about the things that we complain about as far as inconveniences. Right? Traffic on the highway. As we sit in, in climate-controlled cars that are very comfortable, we complain about the traffic. We complain about the weather. <laughs> I mean, we complain about so many different things, and it's because we expect that everything should be exactly how we imagine it should be. We feel entitled to a relatively easy life. Now, particularly among God's people, we find this puzzling then when we suffer. I often think about individuals I know, people I know, who are serving the Lord and are dealing with immense suffering in their lives. I just heard recently of a... um, a family that was um, in college around the same time as I was. Um, the, this, the husband in this family, he had grown up in a very strong Christian home. The, uh, f- his father ran a camp in North Carolina. Um, I'm sorry, his wife's father ran a camp in North Carolina. He was heavily involved and active in, in church, serving the Lord. Three beautiful kids found out this week that he had end-stage leukemia, and he died yesterday evening. That quick. We look at things like that, and we think, why, Lord? I mean, it's people were serving you. You can read missionary stories of missionaries who've gone off, and, and they will go to these distant places to share the gospel. They'll seemingly have no fruit, and their families will die on the field. I, I think of, you know, we've heard the story, End of the Spear, of those who went to the, the most remote Amazon tribes to share the gospel. They finally landed on the river, made contact with them, and what was their greeting? They were killed, leaving their families behind. Think of John Bunyan. Or, um, John Bunyan. Yeah, I always want to say Paul Bunyan, but that's not the right guy. John Bunyan. You know, if, if you read about Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most prolific works of Christian fiction that has ever existed, he spent... He spent Days and weeks and months in jail. All because he did what I'm doing here today. Preached the word of God. In the midst of all that, he was poor. His family was poor. And he had a child with a physical disability. Why in the world would we suffer if we are serving Christ. That is the human response to our suffering. And so, God graciously provides verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 4 for us. Look, don't be surprised. I think when he begins in 
chapter 4 and verse 1, telling us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, this is the same type of thought process that's carried over into verse 12. This is what we do. We prepare ourselves for suffering, and one of the ways we do that is we expect it. We expect that suffering will come. No matter how much our experience negates it, we have to recognize that suffering is a means to good things. Which brings us to the second point. The pilgrim's suffering is purposeful. The pilgrim's suffering is purposeful. We should expect suffering because God is working through our suffering. Now, this is where I find immense hope and great joy in the sovereignty and providence of God. Nothing He does is wasted. And nothing He does is not good. And those realities form for us a great hope that Peter points us to. Notice what he says. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you because it's coming upon you for a purpose. And what is that purpose? To test you. As though something strange were happening to us. Here's the thing. The suffering that we face, particularly the persecution and the reviling that the world gives us, is God not sovereign over that? Could He stop it? Yes. Does He? No. And as we see Peter's, Peter's argument here, we should praise God that He doesn't stop it. Because there are things that we are able to know of God, there are things that we are able to grow in through our suffering that we could not any other way. Our suffering is purposeful. Now, Peter talks about a fiery trial that's given to test us. It's interesting that he uses the term fiery trial. Now, some people have thought about that and, and thought that perhaps Peter here is, is discussing some really intense form of suffering that his readers are facing. And that's not the case here. There's nothing unusual to their suffering. At least in the text, there's nothing that seems to indicate that. But at least it does point to the fact that suffering is true suffering. I think sometimes we do ourselves disservice in the church where we sort of glibly quote passages when we face suffering. So, for instance, you're in the midst of a, of a fiery trial. You're in the midst of that difficulty. And, you, and it's, I don't think it's helpful to glibly just say, well, count it all joy. Yes, we are to count it all joy, but that doesn't change the intensity of what we're facing. It doesn't change the fiery trial that we face. And so we don't count joy in the pain or the difficulty, but rather what it is producing in us. And that's where we see this term of a fiery trial points us to the purpose that God uses it for. And again, Peter points us to the fact that it's given to test us. Now, what does fire, particularly in the Bible, have to do with testing? If you think about it, you, there are passages that you likely coming to your mind that when we pass through the fire, fire burns up wood, hay, and stubble so that we may come forth as what? Gold. We recognize that in the fires of testing, we actually are conformed into the image of Christ as unrighteous, unholy, unchristlike qualities in us are exposed and we cast them off. I mean, this is all throughout the Bible, Psalm 66.10. For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. How is silver tried? In the fire. In fact, Malachi, we see this being a point of the messenger that God will send, the one who will prepare the way before the Lord when he returns. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, remember, this is all in the context of what was said in verse 7. What is near? The end of all things. So we see this connection with what is God going to do with his people as we get closer to the end of all things. 
He'll come suddenly to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. Who can endow the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Peter's going to focus on that at the end of the passage. What does he do? He is like a what? Refiner's fire. And like fuller soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now notice what is necessary for Levi, which is being shown as a type of all of God's people because we are all priests to God, what is necessary for us to bring a righteous sacrifice before the Lord? We have to be tried through fire. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. Notice, then, as a result of the testing of fire, we are able then to offer a pleasing offering to the Lord. So our suffering, our trials, the difficulties we face, and in particular what Peter is going to point us to, the reviling, the persecution, the hatred of the world, it works within us God's purpose to refine us, to be more like the Lord. I mean, if we think about suffering... And I were to ask you, who do you think of as, apart from Christ, who, what biblical figure do you think of as the one who shows the most suffering in Scripture? You would likely say, who? Job. Job understood this. Notice what Job says in Job 13. Though he, what? Slay me. What is Job's response? Yet I will, what? Hope in him. Job doesn't have any kind of conflict in his mind as to who's in control of the situation. And I think sometimes when, and particularly in the church in general, there's this, this sort of, sort of hand-wringing about, oh, there are bad things happening in the world, and we, and, and we know the Bible says God is sovereign, and we know the Bible says God is good, uh, but these things don't seem to fit, so we start adjusting our theology. And we start saying things like, well, well God isn't, all-powerful, or God isn't all-knowing, and we start denying the truths of who He is. Job, for him, it's no big, he just says it, He can kill me, and that's not going to change the fact that I'm trusting in Him. Why? Because Job is recognizing that God is doing something through our suffering. I mean, this is how Joseph finds gratefulness to God. His brothers sold him off into slavery. I mean, he, at, at, he was, had a, a constant sort of up and down roller coaster ride of things. Sold into slavery, that's a down point. Becomes the head of Potiphar's house, high point. Gets accused of trying to take advantage of Potiphar's wife, low point, and then he gets thrown into jail, even lower point. Ta- interprets dreams, and, and, and he was told that this guy, once he gets back into power, he will tell him about it. He forgets. And then finally he remembers and Joseph is brought back into play. I mean, there's this up and down. And it all started with his brother selling him into slavery. And notice what Joseph recognizes. You meant evil. Listen, the world means evil against God's people. They are not benign. The world hated Christ. They will hate us. But we have a God who is so powerful that He can take the evil intentions of men and turn them for what? Good. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I think Paul sort of sums it up in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. He talks about how his outer self is wasting away how he's enduring persecutions. And, and Paul was facing beatings and floggings and stonings. But notice what he says at the beginning of this. He says he does not lose what? Heart. I mean, here's the reality that we face. You know, you may be at, at a point in your life at this moment where things seem to be going relatively smooth. And at that point, it's easy for you to trust in God. 
things are fine. It's when the crucible or the fire of testing comes into our lives that the true nature of our faith is displayed. And it's at that moment that we're tempted to do the opposite of what Paul is doing. We're tempted to lose heart. But notice what he says. Even though I lose heart, I recognize that my inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, how does Paul have his inner heart, his inner person renewed day by day? Because he recognizes that he is facing light, momentary affliction. Light, momentary affliction. Now, Paul is not saying this to say or, or to, to again diminish the difficulties that we face. He's using it for the sake of comparison. This light momentary affliction in comparison to what it is preparing within me, which is a what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we understand what God is accomplishing through our suffering, it makes it so that it's not hardly suffering at all. It's light. It's momentary. But we have to look to the things that are not seen rather than the things that are. And that's the difficulty that we face. And that's what Peter is pointing us to. Don't be surprised. This is not something strange. If we walk by faith in looking at what we can see, we're not going to think that it's right. We're going to think it's strange. We're going to be surprised. But the reality is the things that we see, they are what? Transient. But the things that are unseen, how long do they last? Eternally. Eternally. I would rather have a testing that pulls away things of this earth that will not last so that I can come forth by God's grace and obtain something that endures forever. What does Jesus say about where we're supposed to place our treasures? Store up our treasures where? In heaven. Why? Why in heaven? Because the things in heaven endure eternally. Rust doesn't corrupt it. Thieves can't break through and steal. How do we do that? This is one way. We recognize that the suffering we face is a path to God doing something in our lives. And so ultimately, it is the path of the Savior's suffering that we are seeking to follow. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Now here's the thing. Was Christ's suffering useless or meaningless? No. We are His people because of His suffering. And so the greatest example of suffering that existed on the face of this planet, the death of Christ on the cross, accomplished through it our eternal redemption. It is the great example of that which is looking to not what is seen, but what is unseen. Because Christ, even though He was put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the Spirit. No suffering in this life is meaningless. All of it has purpose. All of it is under the sovereign guidance of our God. All of it is being used to refine us, to purify us, so that we would be like Christ. God's purposes in all things are always good. And that means that if we face suffering, is it good? Ultimately, it is. Which brings us then, secondly, to the product of the pilgrim's suffering. Notice what he says in verse 13. So instead of being surprised, instead of thinking that something strange is happening to us, and again, I, I think we need to, this is a great verse to memorize. Because what do we do naturally when we face suffering? Like we said, we're surprised, we don't like it. 
And so Peter's reiterating it again. I'm reiterating it again. We need to get it through our thick skulls. We're going to suffer. Prepare for it. And instead of being surprised, instead of thinking that something is strange, rather we should what? Verse, verse 13. Rejoice. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The first thing we see that suffering produces or should produce within the pilgrim is joy. Again, we rejoice that nothing, no aspect or no reality of the suffering that we face is without purpose. Nothing is without purpose. But Peter points into something else here that we can rejoice in. Notice what he says in verse 3. Rejoice, why? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We see that joy comes within us. We rejoice because suffering reminds us of our union with Christ. Suffering reminds us of our union with Christ. It's important to note that while we suffer, we are actually sharing in or experiencing to a obviously greater, lesser degree than Christ did, but we are experiencing the very same sufferings of Christ. We are sharing in those sufferings. Our union with Christ ensures this reality. Now again, we one of the things I think we've looked at that, that Peter is bringing out is we like to think of our union with Christ being the thing that gives us all these blessings, His righteousness and, and the blessings of Christ and salvation. And those are wonderful things, but it also brings suffering with it. That's one of the reasons why if we're united to Christ by faith, if we are in Him and He suffered, then being in Him, what should we expect? Suffering. That's what Peter is pointing out here. But he uses the term as you share or fellowship in Christ's sufferings. Now again, John 15, 20. We're not greater than the Master. If they persecuted our Master, what are they going to do to us? They're going to persecute us. But it's interesting to see how this works its way out in the church after Christ is gone. You know, there's this figure, Saul of Tarsus. And what is Saul of Tarsus doing? Persecuting the church. He's holding the cloaks of the people that are killing Stephen. Right? He, he is journeying on his way to Damascus, and in his hands he has letters to arrest Christians. And it's at that moment that something changes. He encounters Christ. Christ appears, and we know the story well. Blinding light comes. The soldiers that were with him, they fall off, his horse, off their horses. Paul or Saul falls off his horses, and then he hears a voice. Notice what that voice says. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. You catch that? Paul, Saul says, well, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, wait a second. Saul wasn't persecuting physically Jesus. I mean, he was, take, he was there when Stephen was stoned. He was there when, when other believers taken to, to kill and to arrest other believers. But the union that we have with Christ meant that as they were fellowshipping in Christ's sufferings. Christ himself was also fellowshipping in their sufferings. And so this is what... Now notice the change. We all know the rest of the story. Saul goes. He, he spends some time. He learns. He becomes the apostle Paul and begins going and sharing. And, and we have most of the New Testament written by him. Dramatic transformation. Now what's amazing is understanding that this Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 in light of what happened there look at what Paul says he wants to know Christ he wants to know the power of his resurrection he wants to what share his sufferings becoming like him in his death 
This word share sufferings, it's the same word that we find here in verse 13. Koinonia, to hold the sufferings of Christ in common with him. So why is suffering a means for us to have joy? Because it shows us that we are in Christ Jesus. It reminds us of our union with Him. And that is the greatest thing to rejoice of. That we are in Christ. There can be no better blessing. There can be no greater hope than the fact that we are in Christ Jesus by faith. No greater hope than that. So we rejoice because suffering reminds us of our union with Christ. But then... Secondly, we rejoice because suffering anticipates Christ's glory. Notice what he says. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And this is actually one of the things that Paul in Philippians chapter 3 ties together. If I am united to Christ in His sufferings, guess what else I will be united to Christ in? in His glory. And that will bring me pure and complete joy. In fact, this is even a reminder to us that our suffering is temporal. It's not going to last forever. It's a momentary affliction, as Paul says. And so as we suffer, we look forward to that day when Christ will be revealed. The day which Paul says in verse 7 is near at hand. That day is coming, and it's coming a lot sooner today than it was yesterday, and a lot sooner today than even when Peter wrote these words. We are hastening unto the day of the Lord. And so it reminds us that the suffering we face, one day it will be over. Hallelujah! Christ makes all things new. And so we anticipate that Wonderful hope. And again, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, if we united with him in a death like his, the hope is, the truth is, that we shall certainly be united with him in what? A resurrection like his. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the sufferings of this present time, you know what? They're not even worth comparing to the glory of, that is to be revealed to us or in us. This light momentary affliction, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, helps us to recognize this reality. We have died. And our life is hidden where? With Christ in God. Wonderful hope that we focus on as we suffer. We are in Christ Jesus. And so we can rejoice in those things. But we also see, Peter goes further in verse 14. Look at what he says in 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed. So not only do we rejoice based upon the hope of the glory of Christ that we're united to Him in His suffering, we'll be united with Him in His resurrection, we'll be united with Him in His glory, but not only that, even in the insulting themselves, we find blessing. Rejoice in this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, this is a a paradoxical statement that's used Throughout Scripture. So the pilgrim suffering produces blessing. Now, not all suffering produces blessing. This is something we have to keep very clear. And next, next time we look at this passage in a couple weeks, we're going to look particularly at the fact that if we suffer because we are sinful, wretched sinners and we're pursuing sin, is that, is that suffering for blessedness or is that justice? And it's justice. It's what's... It's what rightly is done. And it's a gracious thing that God causes us to suffer for our sins so that we would turn from those sins. So not all suffering is equal. But if we suffer 
And notice what he says in verse 14. For the name of Christ, we are blessed. Blessing in the name of Christ brings hope. The call of Scripture is, again, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, 18, to look to the things that are, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, now here's, here's the reality. When someone insults you, do you feel blessed in that moment? No. And I, I think particularly if our hearts are tender to the Lord and we love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, if, our, if we're all in for Christ, when we are insulted for His name's sake, there's a, a deeper sting that comes to it because we realize that we are nothing but to defame the name of our loving and beloved Lord. It stings. And so we look at that and we don't think that we're blessed when we're insulted. That's where we tend to look to the things that are seen. But we're called not to look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And we have this paradoxical idea that Jesus himself said. Peter is likely quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Peter was there when the Sermon on the Mount was given. And as we have those beatitudes put together, there's the final beatitude as as that Jesus says, we are blessed when people, what? Revile us, persecute us, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on His account. Jesus said it. We're blessed when that happens. And that blessing is a means to joy and gladness. Because we have a reward in heaven. And this, here's the thing, this is nothing new. They persecuted the prophets. They persecuted Christ. They'll persecute us. I think about Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, you know, Moses was was adopted into the most powerful family in Egypt. All right, you want to talk about somebody who had the possibility of an ease of life, it was Moses. But God had chosen to call him to set his people free. And notice what the writer of Hebrews tells us about Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to what? A reward, not what can be seen, but what can be unseen. So, what does this do for us? You know, it, it's interesting. I was considering the other day. I was talking with Rita. We were driving someplace, and it was a nice day. and And I was considering. You know, we were talking about how blessed we are, and we were focusing on the positives. You know, we have a car that runs. We have a roof over our head, food on our table. The Lord's taking care of all these sort of material things. We live a relatively comfortable life, and, and I pray, praise the Lord for that blessing, and it is a blessing. But how often do we think of blessings that way? Like that's the only blessing, right? When things are good, that's what we think of as blessings. Notice what Peter is saying. We are blessed when things are not good. We need to switch our thinking about what blessing really is. Blessing is the hope that we're in Christ. That is the true path of blessing. Everything else is is meaningless compared to our position in Christ by faith. And so when we see this blessing that we have in Christ, when we're reviled, when we're taunted, when we're teased, when we are mocked and insulted for the name of Christ, it reminds us that we have the greatest blessing in the world, Jesus Christ Himself. That becomes the blessing that we have in the name of Christ. But, Paul, but Peter is not done. Now that is a glorious hope, but he goes on to show us that we have blessing through the presence of the Spirit. Notice what he says. If you're insulted 
for the name of Christ. Again, verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God, what? Rests upon you. We have blessing through the presence of the Spirit. Now, the original language here has a little bit of an awkward construction. Um, and there's a lot of debate about how this should properly be translated. And so here's my best shot at it. What I think Peter is saying here, he says, If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you are blessed because this glory which also is the Spirit of God, is resting upon you. Now, what what does that mean? What is Peter trying to get at? Listen, we, we look forward to glory, right? We look forward to that day where we will see without any impediments the glory of Christ. But Peter is saying we don't just have to wait until then. We get to experience glimpses of that now because we have the Spirit given to us. Now, I think it's important to note here what the Spirit is given. Jesus talks about how the Spirit is given to continue Christ's work among His disciples. John 14, 15 through 18. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. So if the Spirit is another helper, who is the first helper? Christ. So the Spirit is going to help us in the same way that Christ does. He will be with us forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows Him, sees Him, nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. And then Jesus makes this statement. I will not leave you as what? Orphans. I'll come to you. How does Jesus not leave us as orphans? The Spirit of God is given to us. And so the Spirit is given to continue the work that Christ is doing. Christ does not leave us to suffer alone. He gives us the Spirit who allows us to glimpse the glory of Christ in the midst of our suffering. We see, secondly, the Spirit is then also spoken of as a down payment on this glory that we anticipate. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Christ... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, we are sealed with who? The promised Holy Spirit. And what does the Spirit, in one sense, what does he serve as? He is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. And then we see, thirdly, that the Spirit rests on His people. So we have the Spirit of God, which continues the work that Christ was doing among His disciples. The Spirit of God, which is the down payment of what Christ has done, or the glory of Christ that we anticipate. But then we see that the Spirit Himself rests upon us. This is significant. You know, I've had the opportunity to go to different museums, see different things. I remember going uh, in Paris to the Musée d'Orsay, however you say it, the Orsay Museum, where a bunch of the Van Goghs are. And it's just the vibrant colors and these priceless paintings are right there. And there's no glass. Like, I could have touched the painting. I wouldn't be here today if I had touched the painting, but I could have touched the painting. Just, Just glorious. And I'm able to see that glory and, and, and have it for a moment, but guess where I'm not right now? I'm not in the Orsay Museum. I can't take you to see or show you those paintings in person because I don't own them. They're not in my possession. They're not with me. The Spirit of God is given to us to rest upon us. So that no matter what we're facing, we have the Spirit with us always. Now this is significant because guess who else the Spirit rested upon? Jesus Christ. And that's where Isaiah 11 comes into play. And the Spirit that gave Christ 
wisdom and might, counsel, knowledge of the Lord is the same Spirit that's given to us. And as the Spirit rested upon Christ, guess who else He rests upon? Us. This becomes our great hope. Again, this is what Paul tells us about the Spirit in Romans 8. And this is where I think Peter is driving us. If we set our minds on the flesh, what does that bring us? Death. But if you want peace, where do you need to set your mind? On the Spirit. It's life and peace. This is how we are able to experience true hope in the midst of our suffering. So, as pilgrims, we're called to not be surprised at the insults and the sufferings that the world is going to give us. We should expect it. We should anticipate it. It's not strange. None of it is purposeless. God is using all of it. It is amazing to see the power of God that He can take careless and hurtful words and use them for good in our lives. And so it is also a reminder of our union with Christ by faith and the hope of glory that we have in Him that we get to sample and taste in the down payment of the Spirit of God who rests with us always. So how will you respond to your suffering for the name of Christ? How will you respond on Monday when someone taunts you because you won't do that which sinners do? How will you respond when you speak the name of Christ to someone and they, they cast you off or they, they disparage your name? How are you to respond? Don't be surprised. Rejoice. You're Christ's. You have His Spirit. And He is working in that a great work for good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find in it, Lord. Take Your Word. Apply it to our hearts and lives here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Pleading.